from chapter 13. Acts chapter 13 is where we're going to find ourselves. And as you guys make your way that direction, we're going to go through these first 12 verses uh, this morning. But I just wanted to remind you, when we started this uh, journey through Acts back in August, and we began there in chapter 1, the thing that stood out in it was verse 8. And it was Jesus actually giving a command or giving direction to these disciples that were gathered there with him. And he gives them this as direction. He said that I'm going to give you power of the Holy Spirit uh, so that you can be witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And what we find is, as we've studied over these last several months, is that uh, that is precisely what happened. That uh, there in uh, Acts chapter 5, in fact, the word had gotten throughout Jerusalem so much that when they brought the disciples before uh, the Sanhedrin, they actually accused them of filling Jerusalem with your doctrine. Wouldn't that be awesome if we got accused of all the things we could be accused of, of filling an area, a town, a city with the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And this is what they were accused of. And so you see the first box of Jesus' promise, his command to them, uh, being checked off the list. That the word had gone throughout all of Jerusalem. But then by the time we get to uh, chapter 7 of the book of Acts, what we see Stephen is actually called uh, there as the first uh, deacon before the Sanhedrin to appear before him for the spreading of the word of God. And the, the ramifications begin to be very, very severe. In fact, Stephen there at the end of the chapter, after he gives this wonderful uh, gospel message at the end of chapter 7, they take him out of the city and they stone him to death. And so we see the first martyr in the New Testament. And yet, as we would think, this might stop the message from going forth. What actually took place was as they stomped on the fires of the Holy Spirit, the embers went everywhere. They spread throughout all of the area. And so by the time we get to chapter 8, uh, Philip was one of the ones that took the word of God to Samaria. And so the word goes from Judea to Samaria. And so box 2 and box 3 begin to be checked as the word of God goes forth, exactly as Jesus said it would. Now, where we're going to arrive today in chapter 13 is we're going to see the beginning of the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas. And so we get to this final uh, act in the book of Acts, if you will, and what we see is exactly as Jesus said it would, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth, the word was going to go forth. And they weren't to take the word forth on their own power. Jesus' promise was to give them the Holy Spirit. And so every time the Jews and the Pharisees and the scribes, they tried to come stop it, they could not stop the word of God from going forth. And so often, this is what I think we find in our lives, that when we look through Scripture, what we see are God giving us uh, exhortations. And that's just strong encouragement. And for sure, God exhorts us lots of times when we read through Scripture. But what I wanted to share with you this morning as we uh, introduce this next chapter is that what we so often think are exhortations are actually glorious expectations. That he has an expectation of things that are to come. What we saw there in uh, chapter 1, verse 8, was that you will be witnesses. Not you might be, you could be, it's possible. Jesus says, you are going to do this. That's an expectation. But remember, he didn't set the expectation without first giving them the power to go and do that. And so the giving of the Holy Spirit there in chapter 2. And then from there, the church explodes, it grows. And so many times, this is what happens in our life. We see that the Lord has got expectations for us out there in Scripture. And yet immediately, the question is, uh, in ourselves, we say, what, I, I, don't, 
I don't think I've got the ability. I mean, this, this burden, this taking the word of God out there, I don't know that I can take it forth and go into my community and to my family. This seems way too weighty and too heavy altogether. I'm not cut out for this. That's ultimately what we end up saying. And yet, I'll remind you, read through Matthew. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. This is what Jesus said to them. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so as the word goes forth, what Jesus is promising to do is not to send you off all by yourself, but instead to go with you. In fact, to be yoked means to literally, a yoke was a piece of wood, a large piece of timber that they would put across the back of two oxen to actually be in tandem, working together. They were like a modern-day tractor, and yet every time they would yoke one oxen to another, do you know there was always one that was stronger? The stronger oxen would actually lead, and the weaker oxen would learn from the stronger oxen that would lead and pull it along. And so what Christ is saying here is, I'm going to be the lead. I'm going to take the lead. You're going to be yoked to me. You're going to grow as we go through this relationship together. And so no longer do we have this excuse of saying, but Lord, these burdens are just too much for me. He's saying, no, no, I'm, I'm going to make them easy. I'm going to yoke myself to you. And, and it's going to be light. Yeah, there's going to be work to do, but I'm going to be right there with you. Now, it, for others that might say, uh, if, if they don't pass the, I'm not cut out for this test, this is the next one up, right? Uh, I've got too much sin. There's too many things in my life that actually preclude me. They exclude me from being able to do the work of the Lord. That the, the Lord might have things, but he doesn't know all my past. He doesn't know all the things that I've done, the things that I've thought about doing, the things that have happened in my life. And yet, I'm going to go back to one of your favorite books, Leviticus. You guys love Leviticus. Love the law. Chapter 19, verse 2. This is what the Lord says through the pen of Moses. He says, Speak to all the congregation of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So listen to what the Lord is saying. You shall be holy. This is an expectation. But it's not leaving us out there on an island like, you better figure it out. Go figure out how to be holy. Work holiness out in your life. What does the rest of that verse say? For I, the Lord your God, am holy. He is giving us a promise. He's giving us an expectation, but with the understanding that he's going to be with us, working through us. It's Christ in you that's the hope of glory. He's actually working this out in our lives daily. And so when we read this, that we're going to be holy, we go, oh, not me. I mean, <laughs> God can do amazing things, but I don't know that he could work this out in my life. Understand that when you accept Jesus as your Savior, you actually take on new DNA. That he comes inside us, he lives through us, and so we now have a new spiritual DNA. He now is speaking through us. He is now our Father, and guess what he's saying? You're going to be like me. <laughs> You're going to be like your dad. I'm going to make you, I'm going to fashion you in this way. And so the reality is this should be an encouragement to us instead of a discouragement that we're going to be like our father. Now, a few weeks ago, uh, the twins were sitting behind me in the vehicle as we were traveling, and they said, Dad, do you think uh, I'll ever be able to teach the Bible like you? And, of course, I get all proud. I'm like, yes, 
Of course, someday. Now, some of you may argue that I'm a decent Bible teacher or not, but at least in their eyes, I am. And so I said, of course, sons. Like, if it be the will of the Lord, you shall have the ability to teach the Bible like your father. And then one of them spoke up. I think it was Jarrett, and he said, do you think we'll also have a bald spot like you too? Like, <laughs> wait a minute. What happened here? Like, I, I thought I was feeling really good about me. This is what the Lord is saying, though. He's saying to us, you're going to be holy. You're working it out. We're working this thing out together. But because I'm holy, this is actually an encouragement. I am making you more like me each and every day. And so be encouraged by that as we get started this morning. And we begin in chapter 13, verse 1. And now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and Manian, who was uh, brought up in the, in, with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And so we see that prophets and teachers were given uh, separate departments. I think lots of times in church we try to combine prophets and teachers together, but very clearly in the New Testament and in the fivefold ministry of Christ, the office of prophet and teacher are different offices. And then we get a list of these names, these men that were heading up the early church there in Antioch. But remember, the church is just simply the ecclesia is what it's called in the Greek. It's a called out assembly. And so there's this assembly of believers that are called out. And now in this grouping, we've got these five men that are listed. First of all, it's Barnabas. And we've looked at him for several weeks. His name means he is the son of consolation or the son of encouragement. He was a great encourager. This was his gift to rally the troops and get them excited about what God is up to. The next one we see mentioned is a Simeon who is called Niger. And that word just simply means black. And so he was a, a black man and the same man that we see in Luke chapter 3. What was taking place in that particular part of Luke? Well, what we found is that Jesus was carrying the cross from his trial on up to Golgotha. And as he was stumbling and staggering along, the Roman soldiers look out on the crowd and they spot an African man, a black man, and they point to him and they say, you, you carry the cross of Christ the rest of the way to Golgotha. And so that man was actually Simeon from Cyrene. And so he was an African man called forth to carry the cross of Christ. But as he got close to Jesus... As he had very close personal contact with him, he also became a believer in Jesus. He became a newfound Christian. And so the next person listed is uh, Lucius, who is from Cyrene, the same area Simeon was from. So he didn't just simply become a believer in Christ and leave his Christianity in Jerusalem. He brought it back with him to his home area of Cyrene. And so Lucius became a believer in Christ. And then Manian who is also brought up in the house of Herod the Tetrarch. This is a different Herod than we looked at last week. You might recall I mentioned there are five Herods in the New Testament. Herod is just simply a title. It's not a first name. And so Herod the Tetrarch is not the same as Herod Agrippa that we looked at last week, but this is Herod Agrippus. This would be the son of Herod the Great, the one who tried to kill Jesus there in Bethlehem. Herod a tetrarch is most known for having John the Baptist beheaded. And so he was a man that was very wicked. He had all types of awful things going on in his household. And yet, here is one from his house who came to know Christ. 
I think that's important to note because for many of us, especially as we go through the holiday season, I mean, we look at some of the, the family relationships and the dynamics we come out of, and we think that that somehow disqualifies us for ministry. <laughs> that somehow disqualifies us for being able to walk closely with the Lord. And what you see is here's this man, Manian, who came from this awful house of Herod the Tetrarch, and yet he became a believer in Christ. Understand that about your relationship with Jesus. It's one-on-one. It's personal. He can work through any number of family issues. There are not things that disqualify us. I've probably told this to you before, but uh, God has many children. He has no grandchildren. It is a one-on-one relationship. And so cool to see this man's name listed. Now then lastly, we see uh, Saul, who we will find later on in this chapter will be called Paul. He switches his name. Now the name Saul uh, simply means requested one. It's a Hebrew name. And no doubt of Tarsus was named after the first king of Israel. The, the king Saul, he was a head taller than everybody else in his homeland. He was the one they requested. They asked for Saul to be their king. And so here you find Saul of Tarsus, who was no doubt a, a requested one. He was very accomplished uh, philosophically and, and, and from an intellectual standpoint. He had such a great education. He was actually trained as uh, under the Hebrew a teacher Gamaliel, one of the great teachers in all of Israel. And so he had this tremendous educational background. He was on the upward climb in the Jewish faith until that fateful day on the road to Damascus when the Lord literally met him and knocked him off his horse as he was seeking to persecute the church. And so now it's amazing to me to see this transition from Saul, the requested one, the proud one, chest puffed up, ready to go, ready to fight, and then he becomes Paul, which translated means little, small. That's how he began to see himself. And you even see through the New Testament scriptures, Paul growing in this idea of where he actually stood with Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, what he said of himself was, uh, I am the least of all the apostles, right? So Paul looks at his own life and he says, I'm the least of all the apostles. But remember, the apostles are still a pretty elite Group, he's, he's saying that, but I'm the least of all that elite group. But then fast forward to Ephesians 3, and Paul says of himself, well, I'm the least of all the saints, right? Of all you saints, you, you sinners who are saved by grace, I'm the least of all that group of sinners saved by grace. But then at the end of his life, as he's writing a very personal letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, I'm going to go there and read this for you. This is what Paul says of himself. He says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What a wonderful thing to say. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. But then he goes on to say, Of whom I am chief. (laughs) The transition of the Apostle Paul. I'm the least of all the apostles. Man, I'm the least of all you saints. And by the time he got to the end of his life, becoming really self-aware of what God had delivered him from, he said, I'm I'm the chief of all sinners. If you're looking for a sinner, I am number one, if not for the fact that I was saved by Christ Jesus. And so a beautiful way to see self-awareness happening in the life of the Apostle Paul. 
Now then, verse 2, And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the to which I have called them. And so we see the first thing to note is as they ministered to the Lord. Note with me, they did not minister for the Lord first. They ministered to the Lord. And this is so valuable for us to understand that there is a difference between ministering to Jesus and ministering for Jesus. Sure, it's, it's wonderful for us to minister for him. And we usually get excited, especially in church. Let's go do something for Jesus. But it can't happen effectively and efficiently unless first we minister to Jesus. And that means we have to have an individual relationship. Serving him, worshiping him, reading about him, spending time intimately with him. The reality is, if I desire to minister to him, I must first minister, excuse me, if I desire to minister for him, I must first minister to him. This is where the relationship has to start. Because if it's the other way around, what will happen is burnout. That's so often, this is where we wind up in church. We, we go for it, we go all in, but we don't manage and maintain that personal relationship with him. And so six months, a year, two years, ten years down the road, we're wiped out. We're exhausted because we've done everything for Jesus, but we've not ministered to him. Now for Saul and Barnabas, what we see is the Holy Spirit said, separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And so they were in particular called out, separated to go into ministry. And that really is where the prize exists. <laughs> Paul would go on to say that the call is the prize, the upward call to salvation. This is the prize, is to actually be called into ministry. Because the reality is, ministry is really, really, really hard. <laughs> and so if we're looking for our prizes, all throughout whoever we're going to minister to, we are probably going to be sorely disappointed. But just to be considered worthy enough to be called, when it gets really hard, when it feels like it's going, everything's going south, and am I having any kind of success? Is there any headway happening here? Understand the call is the prize. It is such a, an unbelievable prize. And so we can reflect back on that. Now then verse 3, And then having fasted and prayed, and laid hands on them, they sent them away. And so, uh, Paul or Saul and Barnabas were called to these leaders of the church. They fast and then they pray. They pray in order that God's will could actually be sought out in this situation. Understand, when we pray, what we are doing is we are seeking God's will. Lord, I want to seek your will for my life in this area. I seek your will in whatever's taking place. And so they sought out the Lord's will. And yet fasting is separated because this is a surrender to the Lord's will. That when we combine those two, we're saying, Lord, I'm seeking you, and I'm also going to surrender to you. Those are different things because we can seek after the Lord's will, and then he can make it very clearly for us, and we can go, ooh, I'm not going to do that. Like, that seems really hard. And so that's often what happens for us. But when we fast, what we're doing is we're saying, Lord, I surrender myself to you. I'm giving you everything that I have. And I was asked a few weeks ago about this particular topic of why do we fast? Why is it important to fast in the New Testament? Well, it's true. Um, in the New Testament, Jesus never one time gives a command, you shall, you must, you have to fast. What he does say is, 
when you fast. <laughs> so there's this implication that fasting is a part of a mature Christian life, that fasting is actually a wonderful thing that we can do. We can commune with the Lord. But here's just three reasons. There's lots of other reasons why we can fast, but here's just a few things to consider. Um, the first of which we see in Matthew chapter 4, it was for preparation to go into ministry. What we find in Matthew 4 is Jesus coming off of his baptism there in Matthew 3. He is getting ready to out into the ministry field. He hadn't had any public ministry at all yet, and yet he goes away in Matthew 4 into the wilderness, just him and his heavenly Father, to actually spend time together. For 40 days he fasts and he prays. I mean, that's a tremendous fast, but he wants to seek him so diligently. He wants essentially the Lord to be first in his life. And that's a lot of what fasting is all about. It's putting the spirit first and putting the flesh second. And we all know if you've ever fasted how easy it is to put the flesh first. It is very difficult to do. And so here for Jesus, he wants God to be in charge, in control, surrendering his will, not my will be done, but thy will be done. And so he fasts to show the Lord, I want you to be first. Secondly, we see fasting take place in order to seek wisdom. That for these early leaders here at the church in Antioch, they're getting ready to send off Saul and Barnabas, and so they want to make sure they're doing it in the right way. They seek the Lord's wisdom to do this correctly. Later on in chapter 14, verse 23, now it's Saul and Barnabas. They're getting ready to call leaders, appoint leaders of the early church in verse 23. And when they appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commanded them to the Lord and believed. Notice with me, they are getting ready to appoint leadership in a church role, and they don't just do it based on how good-looking they are, how smart they are. No, they take this back to the Lord, and they pray, and they fast. Lord, we want to do rightly by you. We want to seek your wisdom. They desire to put leaders in a correct spot. And I think oftentimes this is what happens with leadership in church is that they have not been prayed for or fasted for, and so people get appointed to positions they never were really in a spot to be able to handle. It's very unfortunate. This happens even for ministers. They, they love Jesus, and so they go into a career in ministry, and yet there's no call actually put on their life. And so they get themselves in a very difficult situation because the Lord was never calling them into that thing. It gets very backwards very quickly. Now then thirdly, we see that uh, fasting can be used as a form of worship. They can actually be a part uh, of a worship setting. And if you go to uh, the birth of Christ, a spot we're going to land here this next week with Christmas or here in a couple weeks. But in Luke chapter 2, uh, a lady named Anna for decades upon decades had been praying for the Lord to show up in her life. And in fact, she was told by the Lord she was going to see the Messiah. You can imagine that kind of promise. But in Luke chapter 2, verse 37, and this woman was a widow of about 84 years who did not depart from the temple, but served God, worshiped God, served God with fastings and prayers night and day. It was a way that she could actually worship the Lord through fasting. Now, for many of us, um, this is a struggle, right? Especially when it comes to fasting from food. 
Why is it a struggle? Well, because we're pretty fleshly creatures, right? It is difficult to do. And so many times we get into the middle of a fast and we're like, I'm so angry. I'm just going to stop the fast. I'm just going to quit. I'm not cut out for this. But the point is that we're so angry that we want to just quit. You begin to understand how much we're dominated by our flesh when we decide to fast and lay that down. Uh, my pastor tells a story about years ago going to a pastor's conference uh, with Calvary Chapel, and there there was this very uh, you know, large group of people, and this question was asked in a whole group of pastors. And, and, and the question was, why do we fast? And the pastor sounded about like this room right here. So if you think you're the only ones that get quiet when a question gets asked, it was quiet in this whole room full of pastors except for one guy who after about 30 seconds of awkward silence, he's the pastor of a Calvary Chapel in Bangor, Maine. His name's Ken Graves. A fighter guy, big guy, deep voice. He, in the middle of this quiet room, just says, because it quiets my flesh! Why do we need to fast, right? It's a way to quiet our flesh. Our flesh screams out, cries out, feed me. Why? Because it's the one leading so often in our life. And so for if just a 24-hour period, if that's what you choose, or a couple days, it's an opportunity to actually quiet our flesh and say, no, Lord, I want you to lead. And so a way that I do it, and I know looking at me, it doesn't look like I fast very often, but I do. Um, I'll, I will eat dinner with my family in an evening, and then I will not eat until dinner the following evening. It's a great way to be able to not take time away from your kids, but especially if you're away at work, just the time to be able to reflect on God and his goodness. So to go from 6 p.m. in the evening until 6 p.m. the following evening, and every time the hunger pain hits, <laughs> it's a chance to just worship. God, you're so great. There's going to come a day we're not going to need any more earthly bread. I'm just going to be fed by you and you alone. Thank you, Lord Jesus. And so, a wonderful opportunity that we have to be able to fast. Now then, verse 4. And so, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Cilicia, and from there they sailed to, they sailed to Cyprus. And so what we see is, uh, now that they've been called out, they've been sent away, the next move for them is to actually go. That's sometimes where we get tripped up. Why well, I don't end up do, doing the going part? But for these two, they, they leave. They head down to Cyprus. And it makes you wonder, uh, at least it makes me wonder, why did the first missionary journey start there in Cyprus, this little obscure island off of the coast of Greece? But if you remember back to our study uh, through Acts when we met Barnabas, you might recall that he was from Cyprus. <laughs> this was Barnabas's home island. And so what we find is he had a, a hard, a passionate desire for the people of the island of Cyprus, a very practical reason for the spiritual to actually take place. And so often this is what the Lord does. We think it's all got to be so super spiritual. He's going to give us a sign from heaven. But most of the time what he does is gives us a very practical background so something unique and spiritual can happen in our lives and in the lives of others. As they get ready to go to the island of Cyprus, a little bit of background or understanding of this Grecian island is it was uh, this uh, sea coastal area because it was an island out in the, uh, out off of the coast of Greece but it was also a place where they worshipped uh, Artemis, or Aphrodite, the goddess of love. 
So there's a great temple there built for Aphrodite, an entire island that worshipped Aphrodite. And that sounds kind of romantic, right? The goddess of love. Except, uh, if you understand what this worship actually was, is that every female that was on the island was required at least one time in their life to serve uh, in the temple of Aphrodite. Now, that doesn't sound so bad unless you understand that as an act of service, they would have to give themselves over as temple prostitutes for a season to any sailor that set sail for the island of Cyprus. And now you begin to understand what kind of spiritual condition the island of Cyprus was under as they literally were giving their young women over to the goddess of Aphrodite. Morals and any, any type of, of ethics had completely been eroded away when they give away not only just their children, but when we sacrifice our young girls in this way. And so this is the morality that they were getting ready to walk into, and Barnabas was very aware of their spiritual condition. They were essentially uh, the walking dead. What does is, what is Paul write there in Romans chapter 6, verse 23? But he says this, that the wages of sin is death. The wages of his death. They had given themselves over to sin. They were walking dead. The entire island, they had given themselves over in this way. And yet, the rest of that verse is, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What Barnabas knew is that it wasn't too late. That the gift of God was actually eternal life. That even though they were morally depraved throughout this entire island, that Christ Jesus could actually see victory in this place. And so they headed off on the first missionary journey. And in verse 5, And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. And so they begin there in the Jewish synagogue. Paul would oftentimes begin in these Jewish synagogues because the Jews had the very oracles of Scripture. And so if you're going to walk through Scripture, lay out the case for Christ in Scripture, it's nice if they actually know something about Scripture. And so he would go to these Jewish synagogues and preach and teach Jesus as the Christ. And as they went along, they took John. Now this is uh, John Mark, or who we know uh, as Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark. This was also uh, Barnabas's nephew. And so you understand the relationship and why they brought uh, John Mark along, but I want to mention that and also say that Ezra John Mark spent out here in a couple weeks. He wasn't cut out for the ministry. Uh, who did God actually call to go? <laughs> he called Paul and Barnabas to go. He did not call John Mark to go. And so, case in point, as the ministry got difficult, uh, John Mark was not cut out for this, but it didn't mean that God couldn't redeem this young man as he becomes the writer of the Gospel of Mark. Now then, verse 6, so Now, when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus. So this sorcerer, this false prophet, his name was Bar-Jesus. Bar in Hebrew just means son of. So he had named himself the son of Jesus. He was proclaiming to be the son of the Messiah. And so he was truly a false prophet. Now then in verse 7, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man, this man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. 
And so this Bar-Jesus was alongside the proconsul, in other words, the governor of the entire uh, depraved island of Cyprus, Sergius Paulus, appointed by the Roman government. But this man, rather than running Paul and Barnabas off, he had heard their teaching or heard about their teaching, and he wanted to know more. I want to hear more about what they're teaching. No doubt people were being saved, and so he was being drawn in by the Holy Spirit in what was taking place. Now verse 8, But Ilamus, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated. So this is the same person, Bar-Jesus. His name was Ilamus. Withstood them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. And so now we see this sorcerer, this false prophet, as Sergius Paulus is desiring to seek after Jesus. He's being pulled by the Holy Spirit. What does the false prophet do but immediately want to distract? Immediately want to point him anywhere else. And I think that's important to understand as we see that oftentimes when people are drawn towards Jesus... When we've been praying about something and we see them finally starting to turn towards Christ, so many times Bar-Jesus shows up. <laughs> so many times a false prophet will show up and jump in there or a distraction will take place to try to get them to go anywhere else because these matters are matters of life and death and Satan knows it. And so he's planted Bar-Jesus here in this spot to turn Sergius Paulus away. Now let's see how Paul reacts in verse 9. And then Saul, who is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. This is Paul giving this guy the old stink eye. He's giving a look intently. You can imagine how Paul stared this dude down. And then in verse 10, he says, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? I mean, whoo, Paul let this dude have it both barrels. You son of the devil. He calls him uh, right out. Paul's angry, right? And he lets that anger fly. And yet he does this in a very righteous way. In fact, if you go back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, what Paul writes there is there is the ability we have to be angry and it to actually be righteous anger but here's the key he says be angry and do not sin do not let the sun go down on your wrath <laughs> so we can be angry and it not be a sin that's righteous anger but how is that possible one way I would submit to you that you can know if your anger is righteous or not is do you have the ability to go to that person directly yourself because so many times we get angry, and then what do we do? We talk to everybody else other than the person we're angry with. That is probably an indicator that it is not righteous anger. It's anger. I'm mad at how they affected me, how they've bothered me personally. And yet, go back to our story. Look at what Paul was actually upset with. This man was trying to lead someone away from Christ. Here was a, a person seeking the Lord, with, with all their heart. He wanted to know more about Jesus, yet this guy wanted to trip him up. This is the same kind of righteous anger we see out of Jesus himself, right? When we went through the life of Christ, or when you go and you look at a place like John chapter 8, here are all these Pharisees, and they're gathered around Jesus while he's teaching there in the temple, 
And as they're gathered there around Christ and in his teaching, they bring a woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. Now you can imagine this scene as Jesus is teaching in the temple courts and they throw a woman down who was caught in the very act. So she has a little clothing on, if none at all, and she is thrown in the middle of this conversation, this teaching. That's going to cause a scene and quite the stir. And they asked Jesus, what would you have us do with this woman? They knew that based on the law of Moses, she was supposed to be taken out and stoned to death. But the reality is, it takes two to tango, doesn't it? <laughs> Yet there was only the woman cast in front of Jesus. So he already knew they were up to no good. He knew what was in their hearts. And so he tells them very calmly, uh, you who out sin, you cast the first stone. If you don't have sin going on in your life, go ahead, pick up a stone and let it rip. And then he proceeds to just go about and writing on the ground. What he wrote on the ground, we don't know. Most people believe, Bible scholars think that he was probably writing down commandments of the Lord, sins right there on the ground, of which each of these men knew that they had committed. And slowly, one after another, they all just dispersed until it was just Jesus and this woman left, just the two of them. And he looked up and he said, woman, where are your accusers? Where these guys were so mad, they claimed to be so righteously angry at you that you'd broken the law, where are they at? And she said, it's just you and I, Lord. They've all left. And he very calmly and peacefully said, well, then neither do I condemn you. But go and sin no more. Cut it out. <laughs> Cut out what's going on in your life. But I'm not here for condemnation. You see, Christ, never one time in his life do we see him angry with people that are trying to figure it out, or even angry with people that are not trying to figure it out and struggling with sin. The ones he got mad at over and over again were these self-righteous, pompous, supposedly religious people. These were the ones he would form a whip with and drive out of the temple. Why? Because they were trying to take advantage of those that jump and worship Jesus, or worship God in this case, worship Yahweh. And so he drove them off for taking advantage. But at no point was he ever about condemnation in his ministry. He was always about salvation. If anyone had the rights to pick up a rock and throw it at this woman, it was Jesus. And yet he did not because he was all about salvation. Now, back to our story at hand. Paul gives this Elemas or bar Jesus the what for and then in verse 11, And now indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you. He's still speaking to Elymas. And you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him. And he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. And so now we see Paul, he's getting some vengeance, right? I mean, he is letting this guy have it. He's going to cast blindness down on him. I mean, who doesn't love a good revenge story, right? I mean, we all really like a good revenge story. My favorite, the movie Man on Fire with Denzel Washington, right? I mean, it's awesome. He's protecting this little girl. These awful Mexican raiders take her captive, hold her hostage, and Denzel goes after him. My favorite scene in the whole movie is when they're trying to find Denzel Washington, the CIA agent, and they ask Christopher Walken about uh, this man, about his background, and he just simply tells him, He's going to do what he does best, kill everybody. I'm like, yeah, yeah, he's going for it. And here's Paul, right? It's time for some revenge. And his prayer is, Lord, 
blind this man. Yes. But notice, he didn't say, Lord, strike him dead. He says, Lord, blind him. Who else do we know? I think it's fascinating to read this. Who else do we know in Scripture that was also blinded like Elmas was? It was Saul of Tarsus, right? Saul suffered from blindness at the hand of the Lord. And so as he looked at this man's situation, I think you can draw a very easy parallel. He saw a bit of himself. He looked at this man and thought, you know what? I've struggled like that. (laughs) I've led people astray. I've persecuted the church. I've gone door to door and literally drugged people away from their families that were just trying to seek after Jesus. So as much as we want to read vengeance (laughs) and we get excited about this in this story, what I think we can actually read into this is God just simply allowing this man's uh, internal condition to be... He allowed the same spiritual blindness this man had inside to become, uh, to take place outside. And for Paul, it was so easy to see it because he suffered in that way. This is why when we go to the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus is teaching, and he's talking specifically about judging people, we get all excited, or people get all up in arms about, judge not lest ye be judged. It's true, that's what Jesus said. But the very next thing he taught on was don't remove a speck out of your brother's eye until first you've taken a plank out of your own eye. He wasn't telling you not to judge at all. What he was saying is first deal with your own issues. The plank and the speck were the same material, you see? It's easy for us to spot it once we've dealt with that in our life. Why? Because it's very familiar. And it looks way smaller than the issue we just dealt with. That's precisely what I think Paul was seeing here. And so often, we see things happening in people's lives, and yet, what I fear uh, as a church, especially in this Western culture, we have to let everybody do their own thing, is we don't love people enough to speak the truth to them. We don't love them enough because we might get rejected, or it might be too painful for us, but we see issues in their lives that we have dealt with but I don't want to take a chance. That might hurt me somehow. And it's actually very selfish not to say something. Because the reality is for Elemas is there was a tremendous amount of grace in this whole situation. What Paul could have prayed, what did we see in the case of Ananias and Sapphira a few weeks ago? The Lord just struck him dead right there on the spot. Yet Paul didn't pray that. Paul prayed, Lord, blind him for a season until he can finally see the light. This is so much what we miss when we don't want to speak truth into people's lives. God is giving them grace. How do we know that? They're still alive. (laughs) They've got breath. They're carrying on another day. The grace of the Lord is there with them. And so, Father, please help them find it. Now then, finally, as we conclude for the day, verse 12, and then the pro-council believed And when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And so here's this man in charge of this vile island with all these issues, all this depravity, and he comes to know Christ. He believes. He he hears the word of the Lord, and he believes. I think that's important for us to note. 
Was the miracle unbelievable for sure? And yet, what was the thing that actually Sergius Paulus' heart? It was the Word of God. Miracles never saved anybody. It was the Word working inside this man that actually changed him, that saved him. And what was the Word that he was so astonished by? Wait, wait, wait a minute. You mean the God of the universe came down and became a man and then died for me? The God of the universe forgave me? He redeemed, he bought me back of all people? I mean, think about that story. Think about how simple it is and yet how utterly astonishing it is. It is, it is absolutely fascinating and I want to encourage you to not ever, ever one time stop being astonished by that simple truth. When you think about your own life and what God has died for what Jesus himself has given himself for the fact that the son of God came down to become the son of man so that sons of men could become the sons of God that's fascinating when you think about it what a gift what an unbelievable prize it should be astonishing to us continually I'll close in one final spot at the pen of the apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 he says for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes I am not ashamed of the gospel I am not ashamed of this very simple truth why because it is the power of God to salvation you want to see people changed this is where it happens it's in his word. It's the very power of God taking root, taking seed in the hearts of people. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you for the simple truth of the gospel. Lord, we thank you for the way you work so powerfully in our lives with such a simple message, a simple story. Father, please help us to never lose the ability to be astonished of the fact that you would leave your seat at the right hand of the Father, empty yourself completely to become a man. Even though you could have been right there equal with God, you were. You loved us so much. You came down just for us, just for me individually, Lord. That is astonishing. Thank you, Father, for that simple truth. Help us to not be ashamed as we go share with people, as we interact with people, as each of us have a different social circle, a different network of people we come into contact with. Help us, Father, to not be ashamed of the gospel. We thank you for it. We praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please stay? in the trial and the change 
one thing remains one thing remains your love never fails and never gives never runs out on me your love Church says, Amen. Uh, I'm so thankful that His love is a thing that never fails. You know, so many times we fail, we flounder, we flop, we fall, uh, but He never, ever does. So as we think about that uh, this week, and you're going to get opportunities, no doubt, to do what God's called you to do, and that is to just be a light in a dark place. I want to encourage you in that. While we fail, He does not. <laughs> While we lose courage and lose heart, He does not ever at any point in time. So continue on in that. God bless you guys this week. Uh, if you need prayer at all, I'm hanging out down front. See you.